daily dose of debate, breaking news, and uncensored views. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day because, well, it's election day. There are key elections going on all across the country in Kentucky and in Mississippi and in Ohio, where there is a big uh, election on, quote, abortion rights. And it is one where the pro-abortion forces appear poised to make uh, another big win. Uh, This would guarantee in the state constitution, it would guarantee the right to abortion up to 24 weeks, which is a viability, uh, at least according to most sources. And right now, the polling for that uh, proposition in Ohio, which, again, would change the state constitution to grant a statewide right to abortion. This, of course, becoming necessary, at least if you're an abortion rights advocate, becoming necessary after the Dobbs decision that overruled Roe v. Wade. According to the most recent poll that was uh, taken in... uh, uh, late October, the uh, the four uh, the the measure is uh, supported by fifty seven percent of likely voters, with forty percent opposed to it. So it is very likely to pass. Continuing uh, what has been happening across the country in states like uh, Kentucky, which by the way also has a very close governor's race today. The most recent poll from Kentucky and, uh, it shows that it is within the margin of error. The incumbent governor, the Democrat, who, uh, has, everyone says he's very, very popular because he is a Democrat in a state that Trump carried by 17 points. But Andy Bashir was leading with 50% to 48% for Daniel Cameron, who's the attorney general. You may remember him. He gave one of the outstanding speeches at the Republican convention in uh, 2020. Uh, he's a rising young black Republican politician uh, who is uh, extraordinarily charismatic. And uh, if he wins in Kentucky... He will immediately be a consideration, it seems to me, uh, as a potential vice president nominee, uh, either with Donald Trump or whoever wins the Republican nomination. 1-800-955-1776. There are also key legislative struggles going on in New Jersey and in Virginia which may determine the future for uh, Glenn Youngkin and his possible jumping into the presidential race if he succeeds in his drive, which has been tireless and energetic and effective, to win new votes for the Republican Party, to allow the Republican Party to take the other house of the state legislature, uh, the state Senate, which is currently held narrowly by Democrats. The Democrats, of course, want to take back the state house, which is held narrowly by Republicans. Uh, What is likely to happen in Virginia? Nobody knows. Apparently, it's a very close, very tight race. The point is there are 37 states that have elections uh, right now, today. And I'm proud to say that I voted. 
and uh, voted uh, in this case for city council members in the town where I live, and uh, some of whom are outstanding, some of the candidates, some not so much. And uh, and then we also have other uh, votes that are being taken in local elections across the state of Washington, which is true for local elections in many, many places. But go out and vote. I mean, whoever you are, wherever you are, it's a healthy sign for America when you have high voting turnout, people who are – in concerned, involved, and care about their country. By the way, this is one of the advantages they have in Israel. And uh, we are going to be speaking uh, today with the two authors, or one of the two authors, of uh, a new book called uh, The Genius of Israel. And it's a follow-up to their best-selling book, Startup Nation. Dan Sonor is going to be joining us, who was a former aide to Republicans here in the United States, uh, part of the Bush administration, and um, has wrote Start Up Nation, which is about the Israeli high-tech revolution, which has changed the country. How is it that with all of the struggle and the conflict and the political back and forth, I mean, Israel had five elections within four years, five national elections. And yet the turnout and the participation was still higher than what we get in the United States. What is it about Israel that allows even the U.N., which has never been pro-Israel, to rank Israel as the fourth happiest country in the world? Uh, the only country that ranked that high that wasn't Scandinavian. The rest of it, uh, Jeremy, Norway is right up there. I think Norway is number three. In any event, we will be speaking to Dan Sonor later in the show. We will also be speaking to John Yu, uh, legal expert for the University of California and a former member of the Bush administration who will be speaking about the impact of Trump's testimony yesterday. Ivanka Trump is testifying uh, coming up tomorrow. And uh, what about all of these trials and the legal proceedings against Trump? What is the political and legal impact likely to be? We'll talk about that with John Yu. And finally, I'm very pleased to welcome to the show uh, Steve Inskeep from uh, All Things Considered, uh, NPR. And he has written a book about Lincoln, about some lessons we can learn from Lincoln and his leadership Net lessons that are very much needed today. The book is called Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. And we certainly have a divided America today. And one of the divisions, which has just become a, a fatal division, uh, there is a, a, a Jewish 69-year-old who was uh, got involved in an altercation between dueling pro-Israel and pro-Hamas demonstrators in California and Ventura County. And the sheriff of Ventura County, Jim Fryhoff, described the situation. Listen, clip 19. Yesterday afternoon, detectives obtained a search warrant for the suspect and the suspect's residence. At 4.58 p.m., detectives conducted a traffic stop on the vehicle driven by the suspect in the city of Simi Valley. The suspect was detained 
and until the completion of the search warrant, and he was released at 6.15 p.m. During the detention of the suspect, detectives executed a search warrant of the, at the suspect's residence in the city of Moorpark. I cannot comment on the results of, the, of that search warrant as the investigation is ongoing. Investigators have not ruled out the possibility of a hate crime, and this is being investigated as a homicide. Investigators from the Major, Sheriff's Major Crimes Bureau and the Thousand Oaks Investigations Bureau are committed to continuing to locate and interview witnesses to the event or in individuals who are present or nearby that might have helpful information to provide. It is our understanding that Mr. Kessler, a U.S. citizen who practices the Jewish faith, was at the event supporting Israel. The suspect in this case is a 50-year-old who resides in Moorpark and was at the intersection advocating for Palestine. Okay, and uh, this crime that ended up costing the life of uh, the individual whose name was uh, Kessler, uh, he had an Israeli flag. Uh, Ari Fleischer put up a uh, uh, X message that said this man, Paul Kessler, was killed because he waved this flag, an Israeli flag with the Star of David on it. In the United States of America, may Paul Kessler's memory be a blessing May the person who did it go to prison for the rest of his life. Uh, we will be talking about um, more of the argument going on in the United States between supporters of Hamas and supporters of the Israeli defense against terrorism. But we will get to that coming up on the Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved show, uh, we are all looking forward to the debate tomorrow night. At least I'm looking forward to the debate tonight. I hope we all are. Uh, there will be five GOP candidates who have qualified and will be up on the stage tomorrow. Uh, they will be, in order of their ranking in current polls, uh, Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, uh, former governor of South Carolina, Nikki Haley, Senator Tim Scott, a Republican of South Carolina, venture capitalist Vivek Ramaswamy, and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, former presidential candidate Chris Christie. Doug Burgum, the fine governor of North Dakota and a very good guy, failed to meet the qualifying criteria, so he won't be there this time. Uh, neither will Mike Pence, who suspended his campaign. And for those of us who admire Mike Pence, as I do, that's kind of too bad. One of the things that has characterized the last couple of days is since Sunday, the New York Times issued a series of polls in swing states that were just terrific news for Donald Trump. It showed him winning five out of six of the key swing states, all of the key swing states, all of which Biden carried last time, except for Wisconsin, where Biden was just two points ahead. But uh, there is another problem for Biden that hadn't occurred to me, and I don't even know if it's occurred to Biden and his planners yet, but it, it will now because uh, Bill McGurn, William McGurn, wrote a column in the Wall Street Journal under the provocative title, Joe Biden's Hamas Caucus. Uh, 
And the subheading is, could the Democratic convention in Chicago turn out to be an ugly rerun of 1968? And what uh, Bill McGurn writes is the anti-Israel demonstrations breaking out all over, including one that left blood-red painted handprints on a White House gate over the weekend, are transforming the narrative. They're also putting front and center the split between traditional Democrats who support Israel, like Mr. Biden, and a younger, more radical cohort of Democrats that uh, sees the conflict as colonialist Israelis warring on Palestinian innocence. Representative Rashida Tlaib, Democrat Michigan, on Friday expressed this dramatically by posting a video featuring footage of various protests mixed with clips of the president stating his support for Israel. The video ends with this message, quote, Joe Biden supported the genocide of the Palestinian people. In other words, she's accusing the president of her own party, who is running for re-election, of uh, committing genocide or supporting the commission of genocide. It's outrageous. If something doesn't change, writes McGurn, the rift will be on full view at next summer's convention, raising uncomfortable parallels to the troubled 1968 convention in Chicago that nominated Hubert Humphrey. I was there briefly. I wasn't part of the fighting in the streets, but boy, did you feel it. There were Literally hundreds of people who were injured, hundreds of people who were arrested. And that was people fighting in the streets against Mayor Daley's police department. Uh, investigations said the police were out of control and beating up people. But it was all over the Vietnam War. That was the issue because Vice President Humphrey, and he was the sitting vice president at the time, was uh, in the process of getting nominated by the Democrats for president, and he stood with Lyndon Johnson, the incumbent president, in supporting the Vietnam War. And uh, the raising uncomfortable parallels to the troubled 1968 convention in Chicago, well, they're very uncomfortable parallels, because largely because of the convention showing such hideous deep divisions that came down to street fighting among Democrats uh, because Mayor Daley of Chicago had yelled out on the floor of the convention a um, an anti-Semitic slur <laughs> against a U.S. Senator, Abraham Ribicoff, who was in the process of nominating George McGovern for president. George McGovern did not get the nomination that year. He did four years later. Anyway, uh, there, there the tensions over Vietnam played out on Windy City streets and pitched battles between Mayor Richard Daley's police and thousands of anti-war demonstrators who would flock to Chicago to make their point. It was a disaster, and it, it was a disaster for the country and for the Democratic Party, and it succeeded in electing Richard Nixon, who only got 40% of the vote because there was George Wallace, a segregationist candidate, who uh, got close to 15% of the vote. Those who outright excuse Hamas are a minority in America, writes McGurn, and they remain a distinct minority in the Democratic Party. 
So like Humphrey in 1968, Mr. Biden will prevail in any fight inside the convention. But these activists don't have to win to be successful. The aim is to disrupt and undermine. The president is no doubt aware that while Humphrey emerged from the 1968 convention, winning both the nomination and the platform fight over Vietnam, he lost to Richard Nixon in November. A recent Quinnipiac poll highlights Mr. Biden's dilemma inside his party. When asked about Israel's response to the October 7th attack, Democrats disapproved of Israel's response 49% to 33%. Okay, my question to any of those disapproving Democrats, and you can give us a call, 1-800-955-1776, if you disapprove of Israel's response... Do you believe they should have made a response after their territory was invaded and 1,400 people, including small children, including old ladies, were either kidnapped or killed? I I mean, really? There's also a big divide by age. Voters 18 to 34 disapprove of Israel's response, 52% to 32%. It isn't only protesters wearing kafiyas and waving Palestinian flags or members of the squad like Ms. Tlaib. HuffPost reports that 51 Democratic National Committee employees signed a letter demanding that Mr. Biden publicly call for a ceasefire. Barack Obama is also twisting the knife. We talked about this yesterday. During a get-together with his former staff, uh, he condemned what... Uh, Hamas did, of course, but he also declared the need for an admission of complexity. This is the sophisticated way of saying moral equivalence, as the former president made clear when he added that nobody's hands are clean. You talk about this situation where with no particular provocation, and they haven't even cited one, uh, the people living in Gaza and living under Hamas control, not Israeli control or occupation, come across the border into Israel and begin slaughtering people. Again, is this going to be a big issue that disrupts the Democratic Convention in Chicago? We'll talk about it on the MedVet Show. Medved. Here you go again. And on the Michael Medved show, one of the things that the current arguments that you see and the demonstrations that you see and some of the outspoken denunciations that you hear about what's going on in the Middle East are proofs that the American people, most of the American people, don't know that much about Israel. And they don't know much about some of the good news from Israel because it's not all a terrorist uh, uh, hell on earth. In fact, quite the contrary. Even the U.N. recently rated Israel as the fourth happiest nation out of 180 on planet Earth. Uh, Dan Sinor is our guest, and it's very great pleasure to speak to him again. He wrote a previous New York Times bestseller uh, together with Saul Singer, and the previous bestseller was called Startup Nation, and it was about the 
tech miracle in uh, Israel. He has a brand new book that was obviously written before the October 7th attack. And uh, the new book is called The Genius of Israel. The uh, subtitle uh, is uh, How Is It Possible, asks how is it possible for this nation in the midst of trouble to be as resilient as it is. The surprising resilience of a divided nation in a turbulent world is the subtitle. Uh, Dan, congratulations on the book. And uh, are you speaking to us from Israel? No, I, I wish I were. I'm in New York City. Uh, I will be going to Israel in the, in the weeks ahead. My my mother and my uh, sisters and my nieces and nephews are there. Many of them called up, my nieces and nephews, serving uh, in regular touch with them. It's both a, a stressful time and, uh, as I know you know, an, uh, a stressful time, but also an inspiring time. Um, it, it, so, um, it, it is an inspiring time, and that's one of the stories that people don't seem to get here in the United States. Uh, aside from the fact that the U.N. designated uh, Israel among the happiest nations on Earth. One of the nicest things the U.N. has ever said about Israel. Absolutely one of the few really positive <laughs> things the U.N. has yeah. ever said about Israel. Uh, but... Uh, Given uh, the fact that it won that designation, there are other statistics that show that Israelis have actually approached some of those problems of human happiness and community more successfully than we do here in the United States. Yeah. it's um, So when Saul and I wrote Startup Nation, we we realized years later that we left an important piece out of the story of why Israel has such an important innovation economy, such a dynamic innovation economy. And one, what we missed was the number of Israeli entrepreneurs we spoke to told us, you know, one of the reasons they can take big risks to solve big problems is a sense of the country in the best possible way, not in an institutional way, but in a communal way. The country has their back. That, that putting Israel on the map globally matters to these entrepreneurs and, and their fellow citizens are rooting for them. And if they are successful, they're not resenting them. And we were sort of interested in that. We started looking at it because it spoke to us to a, like the health of Israeli society, the societal health. And then we started looking at a bunch of other metrics. And we saw, Michael, which floored us, by the way, we didn't know this, that on just about every single metric in which the U.S. and other affluent Western democracies are falling behind, Israel's moving in the other direction. So For example – Demographic crisis, right? We are we have aging and shrinking populations. People in the United States and elsewhere in the West are having fewer and fewer children. There's been a lot of reports coming out on this. In modern human history, we've never dealt with the situation with shrinking populations. It's very unhealthy for society. It's uh, it's very health, unhealthy economically for countries. And um, the U.S. and Europe are hovering around, if not below, the replacement rate, the number of children each mother must have in order for the population to grow. You have some extreme situations like, like Japan or Italy and Japan. Right now, the population is so small, people are having so many few, so fewer children, that it, and it's aging, that the market in Japan for adult diapers is now larger than the market for baby <laughs> diapers. That's true, true statistic, we cite it in the book. And, and, and the U.S. Is, is not far behind. And Israel's the opposite. Israel's one of the only countries in the world that's way above the replacement rate. Israelis well, are they, having lots and lots of children. And it's not just the ultra-Orthodox, by the way. The, the secular Israelis are having three, four, and five children 
per family. Um, anyway, so I can go through these these measures. Life expectancy. Well, again, I, I know one of the things that you mention in the book is the deaths of despair, which mm -hmm. have been so alarming. It's actually caused a decline in the American. Uh, life expectancy because of all yeah. the drug overdoses and the suicides. Uh, Israel is very low in terms of deaths of despair, particularly compared to Western nations. Now, if you, if you were to point to, you, you talk about three factors that help to create what you call the genius of Israel. That is the title of the book, which is posted on our website, michaelmedved.com. You talk about service, community, longing, and you also about the idea of a Thanksgiving every week. Uh, yeah. Talk about that and explain that to folks. Yeah, so that, that is, I would say, one of my two favorite chapters in the book, and that is to say that communities we have found don't create rituals. Rituals create communities. And Israel is a very community-centric country, right? And so we were trying to understand, so what are the rituals that, that – build this country's communities and make Israelis feel like they're part of something larger than just themselves. And we ask is Israelis about the routines and what kept coming back to us from all walks of religious life, very religious Jews, very secular Jews, Jews from the East, Jews from the West, Jews from, you know, the tech scene in Tel Aviv to the struggling towns in the periphery, no matter who you talk to, almost all of them have a Shabbat dinner every Friday night with their family usually multiple generations, parents, children, grandchildren, sometimes four generations. And I say they do it religiously, literally, and figuratively, meaning they it's, it's just untouchable. It's sacrosanct. Every Friday night, it, everything slows down, the country comes to a halt, and they have this time together. Now, when I ask Americans, give me an example of something, because what's unique about Shabbat is not just that people do it with their family, but it's that when they're doing it, they know the whole country is doing it too. So it's not just a family ritual or a communal ritual, it also is a national ritual. So I asked my American friends, tell me uh, an experience you do, a ritual you have with your family, that you know not only that your family's doing it together, and it's a great source of calm and, and collection and coll you know, uh, collection with the family and, and reflection and, and just real downtime, down just sort of getting off the treadmill for, for a period of time. I said, give me an example where you know the whole country's doing it too. Your fellow Americans are doing it, too, and they all say Thanksgiving. Well, Thanksgiving, that's an example. I say, sure, that's great. Okay, that's once a year. Give me a second example. And they usually Wait, and, and by day. the way, and the left is trying to undermine Thanksgiving, saying it should not be a gay day of thanks. It should be a day of guilt right. because of <laughs> what happened to the Native right. Americans. So they're even taking that away from us, uh, and it's just one day a year. And then when I say to Americans, give me, a, give me another example, and they usually get stuck because they can't think of one. What they usually come up with is uh, the Super Bowl. I know that sounds ridiculous, but they say, well, you know, Super Bowl parties, families. I said, sure. I mean, I love football. We do we do Super Bowl parties. That doesn't really count, though. And I say to my American friends, what if I told you in, in Israel they, they have a Thanksgiving? What you just described, I say to them, as Thanksgiving, they, they do it every Friday night. Now, imagine what that does for um, a national culture, because it means you and your fellow citizens can disagree. And you can argue, and you can be noisy and debate, and, and you can even have polarized politics. But it's hard to split off too far away from one another if every Friday night everyone's getting together with family, with friends, with people they agree with, with people they don't agree with. 
And having this ritual of coming together, it's very grounding. It's very healthy for elderly people to have that time every Friday night with young people. It's very healthy for young people for sort of to have some knowledge of intergenerational continuity and tradition to have that time every Friday with older people. So, Dan, Dan, can you? I hope you can hang with us for a little bit further because we want to uh, learn some of the secrets of the genius of Israel. That's the name of the new book. With Dan Sonor, more coming up. The Michael Medved Show. One of the amazing things about uh, recent news uh, from the Middle East Today is the uh, one-month anniversary of the Hamas uh, pogrom, the Hamas mass killing of uh, Jewish people on uh, October 7th. And uh, there's a, a real question here because you would think that with 1,400 people murdered and another 240 taken hostage that a lot of people would be running away from that. That hasn't been the case. There have been literally thousands of Israelis or people with ties to Israel who have come back to Israel to show their solidarity at a time of strife. That raises a question, how is the tiny country of Israel beset by external foes and internal strife stayed so resilient? That question is answered in the new book, sure to be a bestseller, by Dan Sonor and Saul Singer. It is uh, called uh, The Genius of Israel, the surprising resilience of a divided nation in a turbulent world. Uh, uh, Dan, thanks for hanging with us. Oh, in yeah, terms of, thanks, Michael. of keeping this divided nation together, uh, this is something that is a real problem in the United States, where there, there are many people on the far left, there are many people on the far right who believe that the other side aren't real Americans, that we have mm-hmm. nothing in common anymore. Now, Israel has very, very bitter, angry politics, but still somehow they manage as a country to keep that idea going that we're all one country after all. How can the U.S. learn from Israel's example in, in well, that really, regard? It's really interesting. So uh, a couple things here. First of all, at the depth of division, which we saw in Israel over this past year during the debate over the judicial reforms. People over here in the U.S. would point to the protesters uh, protesting the Israeli government, and they would compare them to far-left protests in the U.S., whether it's Black Lives Matter protests or or whatever it may be. And I would try to point out with them, I'd say, no, 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 you're missing something important. Watch those protests in Israel. You could agree with the protests in Israel. You can disagree with the protests in Israel. Every one of those protests, all you saw was a sea of Israeli flags. They would sing Israel's national anthem at every protest. They would they would they would honor Israel's history. This they, this was not doing. These protests were not out of hate of country. They were of love of country. We chronicle this in our book. We show how Israelis protest in the best possible way, which is to say, we love our country. We're not lighting our flags on fire and stomping on them. We're embracing them. We're hugging them. We're, we're, we're honoring our, our country's history and our, its founding impulse and its, and, its, and its role in the world. We have some disagreements, okay? 
people can have disagreements. But when that's your starting point, it's a fundamentally much healthier form of protest because what you are basically saying is we're all in this together. We just have disagreements, not we resent and, 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 and hold grievances uh, against our own country. So how does that happen? We cite in the book, we go through a few of these institutions, one of which is the calendar, as you and I were talking about, Shabbat every week, you know, Thanksgiving, uh, Thanksgiving every week. The way Israel handles its civic calendar, its non-religious calendar, it's Memorial Day. It's Memorial Day is a real Memorial Day. The country, they have a national siren system, which we're now obviously seeing firsthand because it alerts Israelis when there are rockets coming from Hamas. But on Israel's Memorial Day, which is not a shopping day, on Israel's Memorial Day and on Israel's Holocaust Remembrance Day, the sirens go off across the country at the same time for two minutes. We describe this in the book. It's very dramatic. Everyone stops what they're doing for two minutes, and they're in the moment together, citizen to citizen, as an entire country. Everyone gets out of their cars on the highways. People walk out of restaurants and hotels and classrooms and stadiums, and they just, they're all in this moment together. It's both it's both personal, meaning people are remembering individual loved ones who have fallen, and it's collective. It's also a national experience. And so we go through in the book these different moments that is built into the Israeli system and culture and calendar to bring the country together. And I don't think we do enough of that seriously. And then secondly, I would say, is the role of the military. Now, most Israelis, as you know firsthand, most Israelis serve in the in the IDF. But it's not just about defending the country. They also develop incredible skills, incredible management and leadership skills that we wrote about in Startup Nation. And we have a chapter in this book that's sort of the continuation of Startup Nation. But it also brings people together. So you have the son of a cab driver and the son of a tech billionaire, and then the same hull of a tank today fighting in Gaza. And they're, they're, they're together. They're in this, this moment together, and they're in this country in a very together way. They don't live atomized lives. They, they, and they have relationships for life because when you serve in the national service program of the IDF, you also have reserve duty. And reserve duty goes into your 40s. So you're with these people from all walks of life into your 40s. And it's just, again, it's very hard to think of your fellow citizen as the other if you are in this mission with them to build and protect your country together. It means you can have disagreements, but you never look at your fellow citizen as the enemy. One of the points uh, that that you make in the book is that uh, in, in terms of determining uh, a young man or a young woman's future, uh, in the United States, a lot of that, we say, is dependent upon what college you get into. In Israel, it's what unit you serve yeah. in, in, in the IDF, because people go to do their national service. And by the way, then the government repays them by covering yeah. their expenses for college and sometimes for graduate school. This, this, Michael, is such an important point, because if you think about the university, the college experience, and many of these colleges, as we both know, have lost their minds. They've been losing their minds for a while, but they're especially losing their minds now. But we show in the book, we compare that experience. The average American trying to get into the best college, it's all about individual excellence. It's all about their own performance. It's how they do in their grades and how they do on their... SATs and how they, 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 it's all about the individual. In Israel, you can be extremely talented, but you will not get into the best unit if you don't know how to be a teammate, if you don't know how to be part of a group and work in a community. And so 
the, the, the incentives are learn how to be part of something bigger than me. It's not about me. It's about we. That's the whole culture. And it starts when kids are young there. You see it in the scouting movements, which most Israeli youth participate in. You see it in the gap year programs before college or before the army. You see it in the army. It, everything is geared towards being part of something larger than yourself. And again, when you incentivize people to not just focus on your own individual success or excellence, but being part of something larger, it changes the whole culture of the country. And that's the meritocracy in Israel, which is not the meritocracy here. Okay, last question, because we're almost out of time. What do you think happens next in Gaza after the dismantling of the evil infrastructure of Hamas I I uh, I think that Israel is making much more progress uh, than people realize I think that 20 days or so that they were bombing from the air served troop purposes I think they conditioned the battlefield that would make it easier not not that it's easy but easier to uh, move in the ground incursion like they have been uh, there's still be Israeli casualties tragically but not it won't be the Gaza won't be the meat grinder that it, that it has been in the past. And actually, it also results in fewer Palestinian casualties. You wouldn't know that from the civilian casualties. You wouldn't know that from the, from the media coverage, but that is uh, the net out. I'm cautiously optimistic, and I say cautiously because all military operations anywhere in the world are successful until they're not. And so, you know, things are fragile always. But my sense is Israel's doing this very well. They're making a lot of co- progress. They have ample resources. People, as you mentioned earlier, have turned out in huge numbers to serve. The number of reservists that have turned out has exceeded the call-up numbers. They have about 120 to 120, 150% turnout. They have more reservists than they know what to do with. So the country, there's like an esprit de corps in the country. People are working together, and the and the IDF is doing its job. And so I think they need to drive Hamas out of Gaza. I think they'll be successful at that. I think the big challenge then will be what to do with Gaza once Hamas is gone. And I think Israel's Prime Minister Netanyahu said in the last 24 hours, Israel's going to probably have to maintain some security presence there for some time until there's a there's a plan to figure out who's going to govern it. But I, I, I think like when we, like the U.S. fought ISIS, Israel has to figure out how to eradicate Hamas. It's urgent. And then it can figure out what comes next. Dan Sonor, he is the co-author of the marvelous new book, The Genius of Israel, The Surprising Resilience of a Divided Nation and a Turbulent World. It is officially published today, uh, and uh, it is worth everyone's attention. It's posted at our website at michaelmedved.com. Uh, there's more stories about the impact of Israel and the issue of Israel on American politics some uh, amazing disqualifications that you hear from the far left. We will get to that and much more in this greatest nation on God's green earth.